Brothers, are you ready to talk about Jesus some more? Very good. But you get your copy of God's Word and turn again with me to the book of Colossians. Father, we give you praise for your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our rock and our redeemer, a firm foundation, our hope for life, hope in death, hope for all eternity. We thank you for the privilege of being gathered again to think your thoughts after you as you have revealed the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ in the pages of the sacred scripture. Help us to lay aside all filthiness and rampant wickedness so that we may receive with gentleness the implanted word that is able to save our souls. And help us having looked into the perfect law of liberty to persevere, not being forgetful hearers but doers of the work that we may be blessed in all of our ways. I pray that you would open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things about the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us understanding and we will observe your word and keep it with our whole heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Last hour, we considered the supremacy of Jesus Christ from Colossians chapter 1. This hour, I want to consider with you the sufficiency of Jesus Christ from Colossians chapter 2. I want to focus your attention specifically on verses 8 through 10. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. You have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Amen. In his commentary on Colossians, Warren Worsby wrote about a pastor who was greatly concerned about an unsavory business that had opened in the neighborhood. Protest led to a court case to stop this business from operating in the neighborhood, and during that trial, the defense attorney tried to embarrass the minister. Are you not a pastor, the lawyer asked, and does not the word pastor mean shepherd? The pastor agreed. Well, if you are a shepherd, the lawyer asked, 
Why are you here today? Why are you not back home caring for the sheep? To which the pastor answered, because I'm here today fighting the wolves. As we mentioned last hour, Epaphras traveled more than a thousand miles from Colossae to Rome to visit Paul, who was there under house arrest awaiting trial. He reported to Paul about the church at Colossae. As a result of that report, in chapter 1, verses 3 through 8, Paul thanked God when he heard about their faith in Christ Jesus and their love for all the saints. Yet at the same time, details of that report from Epaphras raised concerns in the heart of Paul. There were wolves among the sheep. False teachers threatened the simple faith of these young Christians. According to chapter 2, verse 1, Paul had never personally visited the city of Colossae. They had never met face to face. And yet, pastoral concern moved Paul to write this letter to them under the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit. And in our text, Paul cares for the sheep by fighting the wolves. Do not know what specific error threatened the church at Colossae. Scholars make educated guesses based upon the content of this letter and the culture of Colossae. Colossae was a melting pot of Greek, Jewish, and pagan ideas. As a result, the Colossian heresy as it was called, was probably a compilation of various errors, a compilation of legalism, asceticism, mysticism, docetism, and an early form of Gnosticism. But as I mentioned in the last hour, none of these quote-unquote isms were put forward to replace Christ. They were presented instead as supplements as if Christ was not enough. These false teachers had a deficient Christology. Their errors about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ put the faith of these young Christians at risk. You see, friends, you must properly understand who Christ is in order to properly understand who you are in Christ. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. That's the way to true manhood, brothers. Walk in him. 
you, you receive him by repenting of your sins and putting your faith in his blood and righteousness for salvation. But to become the man that God has called you to be, after you received Christ, you are to walk in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught. Bounding with thanksgiving. That's the challenge I want to leave with you, brothers, today. If you have received Christ, walk in him. Be taught the truth about who he is so that you might be rooted and built up and established in your faith. Live a life abounding in thanksgiving. Verses 6 and 7 remind us that salvation is more than making a profession of faith. When you receive Christ, you are to walk in him. But it also tells us that Christian truth shapes Christian life. To walk in him, you must be rooted and built up and established in the faith through sound teaching. Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10 states the truth that every Christian man needs to know. Jesus Christ is everything you need. In him, we have all that is needed for life and godliness. And these verses give us two reasons to trust the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me Let me walk you through these verses under two headings. First, would you consider with me the lies that can kidnap you? The lies that can kidnap you. Verse 8 is a warning. The words and tone of the verse are solemn. Here, Paul is sounding an alarm. See to it. The verse begins, is a call to attention, but it is more than that. It, it literally means beware. There was a clear and present danger to these young Christians. And Paul says, see to it, beware. Watch out so that no one takes you captive. Takes you captive is the picture of making prisoners of war. Paul describes the error of these false teachers with the language of spiritual warfare. And that warning still stands. See to it that no one takes you captive. Kidnaps you away from the simplicity of your faith in Jesus Christ. The warning does not imply that you can lose your salvation, but the warning does confront those who walk in a false presumption of salvation. 
It also warns true Christians to guard against false teachings that can kidnap you away from your confidence in Christ. Notice the substance of false teaching. Verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. This is the only place the word philosophy occurs in the Bible. The word philosophy simply means a love of wisdom. In the ancient world, the term philosophy was used to describe the pursuit of God or truth or virtue. Philosophy was really just the attempt to answer the big questions of life. Who am I? How did I get here? Why am I here? Where am I going? This text is the only reference to the word philosophy in the New Testament, and Paul uses the term negatively here. He uses it negatively to say that philosophy may raise the big questions about life, but it cannot answer the questions that it raises. The definite article precedes the term in the original. It is the philosophy. In other words, these false teachers most likely claim that they and they alone had the way to freedom and fullness and fulfillment. Like so many today who would, who would raise their ideas as the standard for freedom and fullness and fulfillment in life, men. Paul is making it clear that their human speculations cannot provide the right answers to the big questions about life and death and eternity. Proverbs 14 and 12 says it best. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. Philosophy is a blind man in a dark room looking for a black cat that's not actually there. (laughs) This is why Paul next describes philosophy as empty deceit. Deceit is a trap. It is a trap. Picture the fisherman who baits his line and throws it into the water. A fish minding his own business sees the worm and swims to it looking for dinner. It bites down on the bait and the fish then becomes dinner. In a greater, deeper, higher way, Paul says this is the deception of philosophy. There are, there are men of the world 
who have philosophies about life that may sound good and wise and deep. But he says it is a trap, brothers. It is deceit, not just deceit. It is empty deceit. It has no meaning. It has no substance. It has no value. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6 says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So Paul warns about the substance of false teaching, and then he warns about the source of false teaching. Verse 8 describes the content of false teaching. It is philosophy and empty deceit. But after describing the content of false teaching, he then describes the character of false teaching. It's as if he says, beware that you are not kidnapped away from your confidence in the sufficiency of Christ by philosophy and empty deceit. And then he says, let me tell you how to spot it when it shows up. It is according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. How can you spot the empty deceit of worldly philosophies? Paul says, first of all, it is human tradition. It is according to human tradition. The the word tradition itself is not a bad word. It just refers to that which is handed down. In that sense, the gospel is tradition. It is the truth of the saving work of Jesus Christ that has been handed down to us. Jude 3 says, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. But the warning here is that human tradition is the currency of false teachers. It's interesting. Some false teachers seek to deceive men through something new and novel. But Paul suggests other false teachers seek to deceive men by claims of tradition. Paul says, beware here of empty tradition. That which man just passes down is truth. Mark chapter 7, verse 9, Jesus rebukes, saying, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. This is a good warning, brothers. Beware of any worldly ideas that seek to exalt itself over the authority of God's word. One writer said it well, tradition is the glue that keeps man-made religions together. 
do not let go of biblical tradition, but do not hold on to any tradition that does not come from God. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it as not the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So he says, beware of human tradition. And then he says, beware of the elemental spirits of the world. This phrase is difficult to interpret and translate. The key term means things in a row. It referred to the alphabet. In fact, the New King James translates it, the basic principles of the world. It's a sense where where these false teachers were claiming to teach something profound. And Paul is saying, while they're where they're claiming to have some profound way of life for you to follow, those who don't know Christ are struggling with the ABCs of truth. Elemental spirits points to the ordering of the planets, spiritual realities revealed in the sun, moon, and stars. And it may suggest that these false teachers taught astrology. And Paul may be clearly just saying here that you cannot believe in the gospel and the horoscope at the same time. Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 through 22 indicates that the problem was legalism. There Paul says of Christ, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you still submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. Maybe the key phrase of this clause is the, is the line of the world. Brothers, do not be kidnapped by worldly teachings that do not come from God. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So he says you could spot false teaching because it is by human tradition. It is by the elemental spirits of Christ. And then he summarizes, it is not according to Christ. This is the most direct rebuke of the Colossian heresy, whatever it was specifically. Paul says it is not according to Christ. And he's saying, beware of any teaching where Christ is not the sinner. Don't follow any worldly philosophies that would show you how to live. But Christ himself is not the standard. 
Notice Colossians chapter 2, verse 3 that says, In Christ are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The key term of that statement is not treasures of wisdom and knowledge, it's the word all. Meaning, ultimately, there is no knowledge or wisdom without Christ. Christ Jesus is the source of truth. Christ Jesus is the subject of truth. Christ Jesus is the substance of truth. I love this about Jesus. Many of the leaders of world religions point adherence to their teachings and away from themselves so that Nothing in their life will contradict what they teach. But not Jesus. Jesus makes everything about himself. John 14, verse 6. Disciple Acts. You're saying we we uh we can't come with you now, but we'll we can we'll come later and we'll know the way to where you are going. We don't even know where you are going. How could we know the way? Do you remember Jesus' answer, John 14, verse 6? I am the way and the truth. And the life. You missed it. Let me try it again. He did not say, I am one of the ways. One of the truths. One of the ways to live. He does not say, I will show you the way. I will tell you the truth. I will model the life. He says, I and only I, in contradistinction to everyone else, I myself am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Brothers, Jesus Christ is the yardstick of truth. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, the Lord asked his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they give him a straw poll of popular opinion. When you read their answer, it seems that the, the crowds have complimentary but incorrect answers to that question. Then Jesus moves on in Matthew 16, verse 15 to say, but who do you say that I am? And brothers, this is the question that every man must answer for himself. Who do you say that I am? As I move on from this verse of warning, let me read it to you again and 
in J.B. Phillips' paraphrase. Be careful that no one spoils your faith through intellectualism and high-sounding nonsense. Such stuff is at best founded on men's ideas of the nature of the world and disregards Christ. So beware of the lies that can kidnap you. Secondly, Consider with me the truth that can liberate you. The truth that can liberate you. Verse 8 issues a warning to heed. Now verses 9 and 10 justify the warning. Here we are reminded that exposition is really the basis of apologetics. You must know the truth to defend the truth. To identify a counterfeit, you you need to be familiar with the genuine article. And so in just one verse, Paul summarizes his rebuke of worldly philosophies of life. And having dismissed them all as not according to Christ, he spends the rest of the text just, again, bragging on Jesus. Verses 9 and 10 declare the the person and the power of Christ. Notice first the person of Christ. It was believed God was a spirit that could not be defiled by touching physical matters. And this claim of the false teachers challenged the truth of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Their explanation around this was the claim that God related to the world through emanations, manifestations. It was claimed that Jesus was just just one of many emanations of God. But verse 9 clarifies that error by saying, for In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This may be the most definitive statement of the deity of Christ in the New Testament. Jesus is everything that God is with skin on him. Virtually every word in this statement is chock full of rich Christological truth. The opening preposition for introduces an explanation of the warning in verse 8. In him means in him alone. Jesus is one of a kind, not one of many. The phrase, the whole fullness, declares Christ to be the perfect revelation of God. 
Jesus is not the exclusive revelation of God, but he is the conclusive revelation of God. He is, as the opening verses of Hebrews 1 tell us, he is God's final word. As I mentioned last hour, Jesus said to Philip in John 14, verse 9, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How dare you ask us, ask me to show us the Father? The word here, deity in our text, refers to the essence of God. John Bingle noted that Paul is not talking about the divine attributes, but the divine nature. It is not enough to say that Jesus is like God. Jesus is God. We saw in Colossians 1.19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And now Colossians 2.9 says, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The fullness of God dwells in Jesus Christ physically and eternally. They claimed, the false teachers did of Colossae, that Jesus was just a phantom deity that floated at arm's length and only appeared to be a man. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Paul mentions the person of Christ, and then he makes a statement about the power of Christ. Verse 9 is Christ's relationship to God. Verse 10 is Christ's relationship to the Christian. Here Paul makes a statement about the sufficiency of Christ and the sovereignty of Christ. He first makes a statement in verse 9 about the sufficiency of Christ. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And now verse 10 says, and you have been filled in him. The verb filled in verse 10 is the noun fullness in verse 9. Christ, the fullness of God, fills every believer. John 1.16 says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Don't you just love that? That's my testimony. That's how, I'm, that's how I am saved. That, that's how he has used me in ministry. That is the only reason things are as well as they are in my life right now. From his fullness, he keeps pouring out grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. Go to the beach and fill a bucket with water. Your bucket 
will have the fullness of the ocean, and yet your full bucket takes away nothing from the depths of the sea. This is the mystery of our union in Christ. You are complete in him. He is everything that we need. Nothing is lacking from our salvation in Christ. So we need not look to worldly philosophies and empty deceit and human tradition and elemental spirits of the world to find direction for our lives, brothers. We look to Christ alone. In Christ, we have been forgiven. In Christ, we have been born again. In Christ, we have been redeemed from slavery to sin. In Christ, we have been reconciled to God. In Christ, we have been declared righteous through faith in him. In Christ, we have been adopted into the family of God. In Christ, we are eternally secure. What else do you need? You have been filled. It is a completed act with continual effects. You have been filled in Christ. You are filled in Christ and you will forever be filled in Christ. You do not need ancestors to make you complete. You do not need worldly philosophies to make you complete. You do not need men who are trying to figure out reality for themselves to make you complete. You do not need charismatic experiences to make you complete. Brothers, I can state everything you need to live your life and lead your family and be useful to God in the world. I can state it in five words, Jesus only and only Jesus. Remember John 6? Jesus... uh, Fed the multitude and uh, that free lunch made them try to take him and force him to be king. (laughs) And it's interesting. The crowds want to make him king. And Jesus started preaching the truth. (laughs) And Jesus went from a mega church back down to the 12 in one day. (laughs) Remember how that chapter ends? After Jesus literally watches 5,000 men who just wanted to crown him, not including the women and children that are present, after he watched them all walk away. (laughs) 
Remember what happens next? He looks at the 12 and says, are y'all going with him? Luke chapter 6, verses 68 and 69, Peter speaking on the behalf of the disciples said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. What a, what a great answer. That's the reason, brothers, I don't know about you, but that's the reason why I'm sticking with Jesus. It is not because he always does what I want him to do, when I want him to do it, the way I want him to do it. I am sticking with Jesus because there is no better alternative. If you walk away from Jesus, where do you go? There is no alternative. There is no true alternative to Christ that this world can offer. Stick with Jesus, brothers. There is no one like Jesus. No one was born like Jesus. No one grew up like Jesus. No one lived like Jesus. No one spoke like Jesus. No one lived for God like Jesus. No one loved like Jesus. No one died like Jesus. No one got up like Jesus, and ain't nobody coming back like Jesus. He is all sufficient. But not only does Paul make a statement here about the sufficiency of Christ, he makes a statement about the sovereignty of Christ. Verse 10, he says he is the head of all rule and authority. Some scholars want to play confused about the the meaning of that word head for the purpose of their own agenda, but head here means authority. The emphasis is on authority. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3 says, the head of every man is Christ. Ephesians 5.23 says, Christ is the head of the church. And now Colossians 2.10 says that Christ is the head of all rule and authority. You need a man to look up to, look to Christ. He's in charge of everything. Rule and authority refers to the spiritual powers in the unseen world. It applies to Michael and his army of holy angels and Satan and his army of fallen angels. Christ is the head of all rule and authority. 
Holy angels cannot help you without the authority of Christ, and fallen angels cannot harm you because of the authority of Christ. 1 Peter 5 and 8 says, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so we should rightly respect the power of Satan, but there is no reason to fear him. Go down, brothers. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 15 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of your trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Notice verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in his cross. Christ triumphed over the rulers and authorities when he died on the cross and rose from the dead. His blood has left them naked and humiliated and defenseless. So may we say with Paul in 1 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 2.14, thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal possession, procession. And through us spread the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. May that be our testimony. I first preached this text as a teenager. In that church I pastored here in this city. Reading my Bible, I was blown away with Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. I preached it to our congregation as a teenager. And I guess this might be another illustration of why you don't call a 17-year-old to be your pastor. (laughs) I think I got the text right, but I came up with a crazy idea to just summarize. This is the first time I had ever preached in the book of Colossians, and I wanted to summarize the message of Colossians uh, as best I could before I got into the text. And so after Sunday school... I uh, had some of the guys to go in the church dining room and get all the different condiments they could find and bring them and set them under the pulpit. And I introduced that message as a teenager from this text. I introduced that message by putting an empty glass on the pulpit. And I just kind of preached around that empty glass trying to make the point that this is your life without Christ. Let 
Then I took the pitcher of water the ushers would prepare for me each week, and I, I uh, filled the glass up with water and said to the church, this is what happens when you repent of your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And just for good measure, brothers, I poured some more in so that it spilled over. He won't just fill you up. He'll make your cup overflow. (laughs) (laughs) And then one by one, I started reaching under the pulpit. I put salt and pepper in the glass, ketchup, mustard. There's a a black church dining room, so I put some hot sauce in there. (laughs) And it was just, and I mean, it was just a disgusting mess. And that was my explanation of the problem for the young Christians at Colossae. They had everything they needed in Christ, but allowed the world to put all kind of goop in their glass. To slop up the purity of what they already had in Jesus. And I just from there tried to argue what I'm trying to say to you this hour. If you are in Christ, you already have everything you need. Keep the goop of the world out your glass. And be satisfied. And our all-sufficient Savior who is everything you need. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time together to lift our gaze beyond the clamoring voices of the world around us that that constantly cry out with their siren calls about how we should think and how we should live How should we respond to the circumstances of life? How we should shape our value system? How we should lead our families? How we should pursue our careers? How we should view the material things of this world? So much folly on so many subjects. that cannot promise what it claims. It only serves to kidnap us away from the simplicity of our faith in Christ and our confidence in his sufficiency if we follow these errors. So I'm asking in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you would help us to just stay focused on him.
but such a cloud of witnesses that bid us to press on in the faith. Help us to lay aside every weight and the sin that easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame and is seated at your right hand. I pray for my friends here today who do not know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Would you bring them to an end of themselves? Would you open their eyes to the truth and the authority and the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ? And by your sovereign grace, call them out of the darkness into the marvelous light and grant them the gift of faith in Jesus Christ who died at the cross for our sins and rose from the dead for our justification. And for those of us who have received him, Lord, may we walk in him. Receiving the promises that you have given us in Christ, help us to cleanse ourselves of every defilement of flesh and spirit and to perfect holiness in the fear of your name. In light of your mercy toward us, we present our bodies as living sacrifices. Holy and acceptable to you is our spiritual worship and acts that you would help us to stop being squeezed into this world's false value system. To be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that by testing we may approve your good and acceptable and perfect will. In Jesus' name, amen.